0: now the good fight with yasha monk hi my name is freddie debor and i recently published a piece for persuasion titled why so many elites feel like losers the purpose of my piece is to answer a fundamental question why do so many people who have outside trappings of success college degrees, often white collar work and various different forms of flourishing and under meritocracy, still feel like they're losers? Why do they still feel a deep sense of being unsatisfied? In the piece, I argue that a lot of this stems from the fact that we've elevated creative careers in our society to be seen as the pinnacle of success and as the only true way to make something that is real, that is valuable, and that is lasting. Unfortunately, as I demonstrate in the piece, making it in creative industries is no easier now than it's ever been. That while the internet has democratized the tools with which we can make things creatively, it has not democratized creative success. I argue in the piece that fundamentally we'll never have the carrying capacity for as many people who want to have creative careers to have them, and that instead we should first teach people to be satisfied with having day jobs, which secure them their basic material security, and then to create on the side in a way that they can provide them with fulfillment and potentially with a little bit of extra cash. I also argue that writ large, our society has a problem with a lack of clear and definable paths to success, that we have more ways to be a loser than to be a winner. And that we all need to take part in broadening our definition of what it means to be a successful human being. I hope that you'll take a look and give me some feedback. I appreciate your time.
1: Freddie DeBoer's piece called Why So Many Elites Feel Like Losers was published by Persuasion. To learn more about the community we're building at Persuasion and to get similar articles directly into your inbox, head to www.persuasion.community.
2: My guest today is Jonathan Greenblatt. Jonathan is the CEO of the Anti-Defamation League. He also served in the Obama White House and was an entrepreneur. And he has written a book called It Could Happen Here. We talked about anti-Semitism, about the roots of it, the nature of it, about the threats that Jews face from different segments of society today in the United States and around the world. And we think about the relationship of liberal democracy to the safety of minority groups. We think about the concept of structural racism. We think about the relationship between anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism. So this is a conversation that I hope is clarifying for people who haven't thought that much about the nature of anti-Semitism, but also for people who are deep in that debate and want to reflect on it a little bit more. Jonathan Greenblatt, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. You know, anti-Semitism is a topic that we've thought about for centuries for good and scary reasons, and yet it always seems new to each political context. The contours of it always shift. What's different about what you think we should worry about in terms of anti-Semitism today to 30 years ago?
1: So first of all, I think anti-Semitism at a time of rising hate when intolerance seems to be in vogue in some ways, we need to acknowledge the similarities of antisemitism to other forms of prejudice and the uniqueness. So I think, first of all, the similarities, like the idea of marginalizing a group of people, the idea of singling out a group based on how they pray, let alone where they're from, who they love, that isn't very unique. And the idea of using that group as like an object of aspersion Right, politicizing them for the purpose of some like partisan gain—that's very invoked today. You see it with the API community, with the LGBTQ community. You see it from both sides, to be honest. Sometimes groups are fetishized, sometimes they're demonized, but for like some political end.
2: Let me ask you about that before we go further, because I'm sort of torn on how to think about the rise of that hatred in general. Because on the one hand, when you look at public opinion attitudes. United States and other countries are vastly more tolerant than they were 30 or 40 years ago. And we're saying in terms of levels of participation in society, this is not just something people tell posters in terms of people having access to top actions of society, in terms of people having real connections between different ethnic and religious communities, even marrying each other and so on. There's a real change in behavior, which is positive. I mean, at the same time, you see... The radicalization in our politics, obviously, a lot of this being very visible in social media. I mean, to what extent is that just a technological shift where now you see what was always there, but the overall volume has decreased? And to what extent do you think it's true to say that there is a rise in these various forms of hatred, including anti Semitism?
1: I think it's a good question. So I think, in some ways, as anti Semitism is often the canary in the coal mine, anti Semitism has evolved. And in some ways, it's a progenitor of other forms of hate. So if you go through the last, you know, 3,500 years, like anti-Semitism used to be kind of a religious-based anti-Semitism, Jews were rated by the Greeks or the Romans or the early Christians or the early Muslims because they didn't accept the Greek gods or the Roman gods or Christ or Muhammad. And then with the advent of the enlightenment and the kind of evolution of different types of science, if you will, in an age of reason, we had a kind of racialized anti-Semitism, right? Where the Jews were held out because and as different because they were of a different ethnic stock. And that of course culminated in the way religious space anti-Semitism culminated with like the Inquisitions across Europe and the forced conversions in the Muslim world. So too did racialized anti-Semitism sort of really take hold or culminate with the Shoah, you know, the Holocaust.
2: I'm sorry to keep jumping in, but I think it reveals that I have a lot of questions about this topic. So I think there is obviously an important shift in the 19th century, really, more than the 18th, I believe, in terms of racializing various existing forms of prejudice, right? It seems to me, and again, I'm in thin ice here, I'm not an expert on this topic, but it seems to me that we sometimes exaggerate the nature of that shift, because it implies that before that it was purely religious and wasn't an ethnic element, and then it became ethnic and religious. Now, the test case for that seems to me to be what happens if somebody converts, right? If it's purely religious, then it should be the case that the moment you convert, you've joined the religious community of a majority society, and there should be no prejudice against you. You should be fully accepted. If it has an ethnic, racial, perhaps in certain ways, cultural element, then you're going to say, "Well, okay, you've converted, but you know, you're still a Jew." Now, obviously, that's true in the Holocaust and Third Reich, right? Many, many Jews were murdered. Were Protestants, were Catholics, had been baptized, but Nazis didn't care about that. But wasn't that the case in certain contexts before that as well? You think of something like the Spanish Inquisition, and before that the Jewish converts who were then suspected of still secretly being Jews, who still weren't really accepted into the community because of their otherness, because of their foreignness. So weren't there these kinds of forms of ethnic prejudice that may have been formulated in different ways, in different language, even before the Age of Enlightenment, before the rise of this kind of racialist thinking?
1: I mean, look, let's be clear, the Jews... Again, they're complicated, the Jews, <laughs> and a lot of this doesn't fit neatly into the boxes that we use today to think about difference. So yes, they are a religion, but the Jews are also an ethnic group. And that different ethnicity was like a, like a mini polity within these larger, very homogeneous societies. We didn't have society that we do today. It wasn't an age of globalization. These are age of, if you could, will homogenization. The group that was different were the Jews. I'm not say there wasn't a little bit of difference, whatever, but literally it was the Jews, the wandering Jew. That's where the kind of term comes from that moved all over the world without a home. And so these Jews, yes, even though they converted to Catholicism in places like Spain or Portugal or Italy or France to avoid, you know, Inquisition and to avoid persecution, still they were considered suspect. Still they might have had a different language. Still they had like different customs, and still they were regarded as different. I think, though, prior to the Age of Enlightenment, when you had these divinely anointed monarchs, if you will, and forces like the Catholic Church or the Orthodox Church were still very strong and existed almost as political entities in these broader kind of governing frameworks, there was the religious-based tint of it was what tended to kind of dominate the day. But of course, to your point, these things are never like Oh, it just snaps and it's a total break. There's overlap. So indeed, it's that residual ethnic resentment, Yasha, that flowers into what we now know as
2: a piece that I have skepticism about, and again, I want to go and learn more about this, but sometimes it's sort of presented as for the Enlightenment and the pseudoscientific language of race and racial prejudice. But then that become very powerful in the second half of the 19th century, is the progenitor of ethnic hatred or the progenitor. Of ethnic discrimination. And it seems to me that that is actually is wrong because we see extreme forms of ethnic discrimination and prejudice all through human history towards other groups. And it may be that its nature shifts a little bit. It's maybe that the language that's used to express it shifts. But I guess what I'm reacting to is a way of presenting it, which makes it sound like there wouldn't be these forms of ethnic prosecution if it weren't for the enlightenment and that language of science. And again, Perhaps you don't get the Holocaust about it. Perhaps you don't get a very particular kind of way of thinking, right? But I think the, the difference is more subtle when I often hear it being made.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, racialization and ethnic marginalization, you know, didn't start with the 19th century. It had been there before. Look at the Roma people who have been discriminated against for centuries, irrespective of how they pray, because they look different and their ethnic origins are quite different than... What Western Europe was used to. So you're totally correct in pointing this out. And just the subjugation of indigenous people and the enslavement of them, you know, over centuries, well before the age of enlightenment was based on the fact that, again, it wasn't just the fact that they were pagans, quote unquote, it was that they all saw them as sort of, if you will, racially inferior. We didn't have that language to describe it. It was clearly present in the thinking around these people, why they were inferior. So although that acquired A kind of pseudo-scientific tint in the 1800s. And then again, after the Shoah, I would say the kind of hatred against the Jews began to take on an almost political tint. So again, that wasn't a neat break, right? So Hitler and the Third Reich, with its obsession about communism, blamed the Jews for being the Bolsheviks, of course, right? And so there was sort of a political tint to that anti-Semitism that took full force after The Shoah, when, of course, the Jews were still derided as communists, by the way, within the former Soviet Union, which I think you've studied and know better than me, the Jews were certainly not authentic communists, right? They were still not trusted and still loathed. Then, in other parts of the world, we might call like the non-aligned movement and the kind of Arab world really picked up Zionism as this new political enemy. And much of the aspersions that were cast against the Jews the Jewish religion is illegitimate. The Jewish people don't belong. The Jews should go back to Palestine, soon became the Jewish state is illegitimate. The, the Israelis don't belong. They should go back to Poland. So you can almost do a search and replace and it's similar tropes about dual loyalty and manipulation and not belonging that then acquired a very political tip with the advent of Israel. So I was talking about all this to say, like, I think we see hate and intolerance sometimes assume kind of a somewhat similar arc. So like today, it seems like the rifts in our society. Now, again, if I were a, maybe a trans person, I might disagree with this. But it seems today, like if you look at the polling and you just talk to people, it's like right and left, red and blue. It's a kind of political hatred, political polarization. That seems to be the dominant dialectic versus like an ethnic polarization or religious Kind of hatred, which previously was ascendant. And so, in much the same way that anti Semitism now has a very political sheen are you on the right? Are you on the left? It seems like division generally now has a very political sheen. Are you on the red team or the blue team?
2: That's very interesting. Yeah. I mean, one of the most striking findings about the US is that in the 50s and 60s, most people didn't care about their child marrying a spouse of a different political party, but they did really care if they married a spouse of a different race or a different religion, actually. Today, we've made great progress in that few Americans would be upset if their child marries somebody of a different race. That is, in the, his- in the light of American history, an incredible progress. But uh, perversely or ironically, people now would be really upset if a kid married somebody of a different political party. Now, Perhaps it's better. Perhaps political polarization is better than racial polarization. We can debate that, but it is interesting to see that. Going back for a moment, so how should we think about anti-Semitism? You said that it is in many ways similar, but in some ways different, right? So when we think about hatred of Asian Americans or hatred of African Americans or hatred of, you know, Turkish immigrants and descendants in Germany or whatever other example you might think of around the world... You know what element of that definition is effectively going to be the same? We say, well, anti-Semitism is just hatred of this different group of Jews, but it's the same kind of hatred. And where do we have to change the definition? can we just run a parallel definition because of a complicated nature of what makes a Jew, which is you know a religious but also an ethnic and also a cultural.
1: yeah. Culture? so I think there are a couple things. It's a really good question. It's kind of a sophisticated, like it's a layered one in many ways. So again, it is a kind of ethnicity and it's a kind of religion and it's a kind of culture. I mean, you will find people that say, I'm an atheist and yet I'm a Jew. Right? I don't believe in any of that, but I identify as Jewish, as if it were, again, a place from which someone was from or an ethnic stock they're from. You'll have other people say, like, there's no such thing as a Jewish race, but I am Jewish. I go to synagogue. I pray, you know, multiple times a day. I keep kosher. So you'll meet people who... I had uh, dinner last night with an individual who was born Catholic, African-American from the South, who's a convert to Judaism and wears a kippah and has a kosher home and a Shomer Shabbos. He's as Jewish as I am from my point of view. Clearly we have a different ethnic stock. He is much more religious than I am, but we still have a kind of commonality to us. So interestingly... Like if you think about other ethnic groups or religious groups, I don't know if anyone has this, clearly there are Muslims and Muslim identity, like Jewish identity is very strong, but you have Muslims from Indonesia, Muslims from, you know, the Arabian Peninsula who don't pray the same way, don't blah, 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 very different. Judaism is so layered and again is dimensional in ways that it's not quite an ethnicity, but it is, it is definitely a faith, but you don't have to be. It is a culture, but that varies place to place. My wife's Iranian Jewish heritage is entirely different, 180 degrees, from my Ashkenazi Jewish heritage, right? Like challah on a Friday, they don't do that. Like that's a foreign concept to them. They didn't have challah bakeries, you know, in Isfahan, right? But that to me is like so central to my observance of this very basic, most basic Jewish rite that we observe every week. So I just share that it's just complicated, which makes it interesting and challenging. But what is similar and different from other kinds of prejudice? Number one, ultimately, hatred of Jews is a kind of otherization, right? Like the bigot who hates black people because they are the other or the bigot who hates gay people because they are the other. So there is a similarity to the way that some would divide and separate our societies based on some kind of inherent immutable trait, number one. And then number two, what's similar, but what's different, I think, Yasha, is that anti-Semitism, as the Holocaust scholar Deborah Lipstadt has written, is a kind of conspiracy theory about how the world works that posits that the Jew, the eternal Jew, in some way is responsible for whatever is wrong. So whereas you might dislike, and throughout time, like colorism, we call it racism, today isn't new. It's been going on for thousands of years. But that's where someone feels superior to someone else. Anti-Semitism is like, it's the Jews who are responsible for fill-in-the-blank. Controlling business, manipulating government, the world's wars, cheating me, whatever. Like, there's a set of tropes, I hate that word, but like recurring myths that seem to cross cultures. They've been reinforced, again, by different socio cultural forces over time that keep this alive. But I think the conspiratorial nature of anti Semitism makes it very different. But what makes that particularly germane today, Asha, is I think we're living in a time in a world shaped by social media, where we're trapped in our filter bubbles, in a world where everything has become relative, and conspiracy theories are the coin of the realm, where nothing can be believed, and in a world in which nothing can be believed, in a world in which anything is possible, and people always feel like something is working against them, we shouldn't be surprised that anti-Semitism not just festers, but flourishes. And in a world in which systems also seem to be failing. And I think, you know, Persuasion as a blog has written about this for a long time. You know, like our politics are failing. Markets are failing. Our expectations aren't being met. That creates the kind of space where populists, demagogues come in and their typical tool belt, the first thing they do is they blame, right? Well, it's not your fault. It's the fault of the the Jew. And so the conspiratorial dimension of anti-Semitism, which, again, I think is somewhat unique because of its recurring nature, because how amorphous it is, like the immigrant takes your job, right? The welfare queen takes the government money, but the Jew does all of it.
2: There's two things here, I think, that are interesting. The first is some conspiracy theories. The more I think about it the more it strikes me that conspiracy theories are actually deeply reassuring to the person who believes in them. You know, my model of a world is that it's a really chaotic place in which there's a bunch of powerful and affluent and rich people but nobody actually has a tremendous amount of agency. Even the president of the United States, even a billionaire feels very constrained within, you know, various logics of a field of endeavor which means that they can't do nearly as much as they want. And the billionaire can, you know, buy a huge yacht and have a bunch of servants wipe glasses, but they can't actually have that much impact on the world, not as much as they want to. Governments aren't as effective as they are. And so, you know, the truth is that nobody's fully in charge and there's some big problems and we don't know where we're going to solve them. And that's pretty scary. Now, if you believe in a conspiracy theory, actually, what you end up thinking is, look, there's these 30 evil guys and they get together and build a book of Davos or whatever, and they make all the decisions. And if only we could replace them and put good people in charge instead, things would be great. Things would be a lot better. There's something actually essentially reassuring about the implicit causal model of the world that conspiracists have. And I think that's part of the reason for its appeal. That's sort of a side observation. And the other thing I wanted to say is that I think you're right that most forms, I don't know if it's always the case. There must be some cases that are more analogous to anti-Semitism, perhaps prejudice against Parsis in India or against certain other groups that are quite successful in their context, perhaps against Chinese minorities in Vietnam or other things. But by and large, prejudice tends to be an inscription of inferiority, right? We in the majority are the good people, the moral people, the smart people, the whatever people. Look at this minority in our country they're worse than us, they're poorer and stupider and more whatever, right? And so you're saying, you know, we need to protect our country against these inferior people. That is how prejudice tends to be expressed. With Jews, as you're pointing out, there's a sort of inferiority superiority, right? On one hand, you are saying, you know, Jews are vermin, they're scum, they're, you know, morally bad, etc. So there is a description of inferiority. But it's also this fear of a superiority. They secretly govern the world. They're the ones who are really in charge, Right. How much of that is rooted in the empirical success that Jews have had in various societies, right? Going back to what you were saying about the Nazis and the Germans blamed the Jews for being the communists who, you know, are communist activists. And then you go to, you know, Moscow at the same time and the Jews are being blamed for being the capitalists. And of course, in a way, both were true at the time, which is to say that if you look at the leadership of communist parties, Jews were overrepresented. And if you look at, you know, successful businessmen, Jews were overrepresented as well. And it's just because for complicated cultural and other reasons, Jews have proven to be very successful in the modern world. In the late, early 20th century, they're overrepresented, you know, in the world of communist activists and in the world of capitalists and on Wall Street and in Hollywood. And yes, in journalism, and according to some story that I never dug into, they even looked up some neo-Nazi leaders and it turned out that a surprising number of them had some Jewish roots, too. You know, how much of this is a, obviously, a rational response to the fact that Jews have been quite successful in the modern world? Look, I am a former entrepreneur,
1: right? So I had the good fortune to try my hand at business at creating new things. And I was blessed to have some success at that. And in some ways, the act of creating new things, not starting out with money, not starting out with resources, not starting out with some kind of like aristocratic pedigree. You know, I was the first in my family to go to college. I mean, it's not a big deal. It just is what it is. But like, I had to figure it out. And I think there's something very Jewish about that, because Jews typically are immigrants. Jews typically come to places historically without land, without capital, without a pedigree. So they have to figure it out. I mean... Talmudic education, the, the nature, the questioning, the inquisitive nature, the questioning kind of imperative in Talmudic kind of study is about figuring it out. And so I think there is this cultural impulse for Jews who didn't lack some of the things I was just saying. They didn't have the privilege of those advantages. We have a cultural predilection to quote figuring it out. And so I think when you look at the overrepresentation of Jews, I mean Jews went to communism because yeah, I mean, look, I can't speak for all the Jews, but like across societies, not just in the former Soviet Union. Like it's funny, my wife has family in Iran who were communists because the Jews were discriminated against because of their religion. So this idea of wiping out religion seemed like an antidote to their persistent diminishment because they were the wrong religion. And then Jews were the capitalists because in free markets, they figured it out and they could by their wits create things that otherwise wasn't available to them I and mean, so on. So There is, I think, a a survival instinct that kicks in and Jews figure it out and have throughout time because they lacked other inherent advantages. But I also would say that, you know, so often as the case, we lose sight of history. Like Jews historically, while we've succeeded beyond the wildest imagination of our forebears in America and in the world writ large near 2023, I think 100 years ago, this kind of success was almost unimaginable. It just was. I mean, in the year 1923, Jews were living here comfortably in the U.S., but look, the ADL was formed just 10 years earlier, right? Because Jews had a series of systematic disadvantages, couldn't buy homes in many places in the United States, couldn't work in many professions, were kept out of medical institutions, kept out of universities, and so on and so forth. I think to think 100 years later that there'd be a Jewish second gentleman There'd be Jewish leadership in businesses and academia and culture. I mean, this was, it was unimaginable. So Jews have had disproportionate success relative to our small numbers. I think part of that's fueled by the survival instinct. And yet we also should keep in mind that even though they have succeeded, they've never had the kind of success and it certainly never came easy to them. And it was always ephemeral, right? The one thing, Yasha, that's certainly true, Throughout the Jewish experience, almost in every country where the Jewish people have lived, with the exceptions of like India and a few others, Canada, even pretty much in this country, Australia, like in all the places, the Jewish experience ends at some point, at some point, like literally, the story goes to, you know, persecution, forced conversion, appropriation, and death or exile. Like, Honestly, throughout Europe, throughout North Africa and the Middle East, throughout Sub-Saharan Africa, this is how the story ends. It just does. So I am someone who is a very patriotic American. I believe this is the greatest democracy in the history of modernity, probably in the history of the whole world. It's been a gift to humanity on so many levels, particularly to, to the Jewish people. But I wrote my book. Like the idea that there's some natural law that preordains our future here is a fiction and it may be a comfortable one that we tell ourselves but the reality is if history is any guide at some point the music will stop here too and we got to be ready for that or alternatively if we don't want the music to stop we need to learn from history to make sure it keeps playing
2: that seems right i mean a few thoughts one is to sort of i guess give a stab and answer my own question i think there is an element to what i was saying that's true but we also see that before Jews were able to be successful because they some of the civic disabilities on the participation in culture and the economy were abolished in the late 18th century and 19th century, all of those conspiracy theories already existed. Europe in the Middle Ages, where Jews were living in very tightly packed ghettos, really not doing particularly well, and were blamed for poisoning the wells during the Black Death and so on. So actually this streak of conspiracism that blames the Jews for everything that goes wrong pre-exist the enormous success we had in the 19th and 20th centuries, and there's flourishing of Jewish talent and life that we can celebrate. So that's one important thought. The other one is that, you know, instinctively, I share that sensibility of looking back at Jewish history and realizing how often it's gone wrong. And for me, that's not just because I'm descended from Holocaust survivors, it's also because my own parents, well, my grandparents became convinced communists and helped to fight for communism when it was dangerous, and they went to prison for it in the 30s, and then helped to build up a communist regime in Poland after World War II. And the regime promptly turned on them. And throughout the remaining Jews from Poland in 1968, there was about 50,000 Jews left in Poland in 1967. There was about 500 left in 1970. And my own parents, who were not political, who were 20 years old, were thrown out of a country they were born and raised in, for being Jews. So, this sort of sense that people can make the bet in a political system and make the bet of a, on a country and find that it expels them, to me, is not an artifact of a distant Jewish history. It's an artifact that's deeply shaped my parents' life and my life in terms of where I grew up and where I was born and, and the stories I heard around the kitchen
1: table. So they were kicked out in 1967? 1968, yeah. I think this is not ancient history. Jews live with so much privilege today. And let's also be clear, like, many Americans can't name the vice president. You know, many Americans don't know how many amendments are in the Constitution. So, like, we have a very short memory of our own, like, national history, our most holy documents, if you will, right? Most people don't know where the Declaration of Independence was signed. I could go on and on. But to your point, like, in the not-so-distant history, we just don't remember. We just don't remember that, like, again, what happened in these countries after the Second World War right before the fall of communism, when Jews were routinely discriminated against, marginalized, you know, thrown out, victimized. I the stories are harrowing, and their impact, like, lingers, it endures in ways that are, I'm sure, like, again, as you said, shape your entire existence.
2: Yeah, and so I guess the question that I have have is why I have it as a theoretical possibility, and I do worry about that, and yet you know, I'm perhaps less acutely worried for the role of Jews in America than you are. I mean, I think, you know, there's many mid-sized bad things going on right now, but I hope that our place in America may be more secure. And I think there's two reasons for that instinct, but that also show perhaps its limitations, right? The first has to do with liberal democracy. What the experience of my family over generations has had in common is that it was extremist politics that wasn't based on the principles of liberal democracy. My grandparents' life was deeply shaped and families killed because of right-wing extremism. And even though I, I do not want to equate those two historical episodes and those two evils, which are very different magnitudes, my grandparents and my parents were then thrown out of Poland by a totalitarian regime of the left but they set great in. So I think that double concern that Jews have again today in the United States about attacks from the left and the right is not a new thing. It's something that has a very long history. And the thing that makes me hopeful for America is that I think the reason why we've been able to flourish here and why Jews have been able to flourish in other countries is that it is a system of liberal democracy that protects the rights of individuals and the rights of, by derivation from that, minority groups. And that is what makes me optimistic. Now, that, of course, could be lost. That is why, as Jews, we should be worried about right wing extremists like Donald Trump, as well as about some of the illiberal tendencies on the left, which have less local purchase, but are concerning to me. I guess the other point I would make is that there is an ethnic composition question, which perhaps makes me a little bit less worried. Like, let's say that democracy fails. I think that would be a very dangerous moment for Jews, right? Moments of political change, moments when we lose liberal protections, those are the moments when Jews fare very, very badly. The problem with America, though, is it has so many different ethnic groups and so many different religions that, you know, if you start to really break the basic social compact of tolerance in a real way, as happened to my parents and grandparents in Poland and other places, you know, the whole thing falls apart. And that's a little bit new because most of the societies we're talking about, as we were saying earlier, were ones where Jews were the odd one out in an obvious way, There might've been some other groups as well, Roma groups, some other groups, depending on the local context. But, you know, The Jews were the most salient, obvious minority group, and in a way you could exile them, sometimes murder them, impoverish them, without it affecting 90 or 95% of the population. You know, in America today, I mean, if you start breaking the basic social compact of where there are diverse societies of of all these different ethnicities, religions, and so on, the whole thing breaks apart. And perhaps that just means that we have a danger of something even more horrific down the line, or, or perhaps it makes it less likely because there's some kind of mutual protection by everybody feeling vulnerable in a way that wouldn't have been the case in, you know, early 20th century
1: Russia. There's a lot in this line of inquiry, I think. So a few things. So number one, I definitely think that I would never be one to say that, like, there's a Holocaust around the corner. I don't believe that. I think the Shoah was a function of a confluence of factors. It's just different than where we are today. Could there be other terrible catastrophes that befall the Jewish people? Sure. You know, if you listen to Khamenei, he talks about destroying the cancer of Israel. That could be as horrifying and as homicidal as what Hitler envisioned. Different, but equally disastrous. Okay, an end of history of sorts. And yet, like I don't think the gas chambers are around the corner of the United States. And so when these people make these comparisons that oh. Trump is Hitler. Like, I think it's super unhelpful because it's just factually wrong. And I think this reductive tendency to say, oh, this and this are the same. It's just not always helpful. It's not helpful. So number one, I don't think that's around the corner. Number, one. number two, if liberal democracy were to unravel and were to fail, indeed, lots of people would be implicated in that and, and be on the losing end, particularly, I think, minorities, Jews and plenty of others, In fact, there may be others who are more disadvantaged than the Jewish people because they lack a kind of purchase or they lack a kind of integration in society and so on. So a threat to liberal democracy, a threat to everyone, not just to the Jews. You know, look, if you pay attention to the extremists, and we do at ADL, you can't help but notice that the tendency that they have of the extremes to obsess about the Jews is very, very real. So even if the whole project of our democracy unravels, everybody loses, And yet if you do pattern recognition you see like to the white supremacists the far-right extremists the sovereign citizens those people like there is an obsession with the jew who quote-unquote wants to replace us right the obsession with the jew who's paying migrants to quote-unquote come from central america to commit white genocide there's an obsession with the globalists and the bankers and the this and the that that is real and it's palpable and there's a reason why on a per capita basis, Jews far and away are the most targeted minority as relates to hate crimes. Like it's just real, and there's a reason why. If you look at extremist-related murders, it's the far right who commits the vast majority of them over the past, say, thirty years. It just is. If I could draw an analogy, if you will, Yasha, why I think this moment can be dangerous for the Jews, I'll draw an analogy like to the environment. I think the threat of the extreme right to the Jews and others, but the threat of the extreme right is a bit like a Category Five hurricane, Yasha. That is. Bearing down on you. You can see it coming. You can put the storm shutters up and it will still blow apart your house. It will kill everyone inside. It will destroy everything. The Category Five Hurricane, like people with masks and billy clubs and gear rampaging through the Capitol looking for legislators to kidnap and kill. Right? Like the extreme right, it's 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 violence and it's explosive. It's like a category five hurricane. So we need to see that for the threat that it is. The far left, Yasha, is more like climate change. So the threat starts down here, if you can see my hand. And it slowly increases. Some people don't see it. And then other people deny it. And then people see it and they dismiss it. And then people think they can adapt to it. And then suddenly, Yasha, the temperature is up here. And the environment that you live in is no longer hospitable the way that it once was. And when the temperature's up here, you get those kind of Category 5 storms that can kill you. And so it's more subtle, it's more insidious, but it's also a threat. So here's what I would say. Yes, indeed, again, if the project of democracy falls apart, we all lose. But if you pay attention to what's happening on college campuses, and the attacks on Zionists, like you'll have an anti-Israel speaker on campus, and then there are swastikas on the Jewish fraternity. You'll have a professor of psychology at George Washington University, Not exactly an unaccredited, you know, third-rate institution. This is a world-class university. Like berating the students in her class who are quote-unquote Zionists, and making all the Jewish students feel and their grades reflect it, like somehow they are less than all the other students. She's not asking them about whether they vote for Bibi Netanyahu. She's not asking them about their opinion of Baruch Goldstein. She's saying all of you are, you know, a problem. And I've heard this from kids on campuses who say to me, like, look, I can go to Hillel now or then, but I really can't be open about it. Because Hillel is part of the Israeli war machine. That's what's portrayed on a campus. And I've heard this from colleagues, if you will, in newsrooms. And people know I'm Jewish, but we can't really address issues of anti-Semitism in a very open way. Because Israel makes it hard, so we can't talk about anti-Semitism when Jews are getting beaten up in the streets here in the United States. And I hear about it like in other different spheres. So, It is not to say that Jews, again, are looking at a new set of Nuremberg laws, but when a world is created that encroaches upon your ability to show up as your whole self in a way that your peers do, when an environment kind of calcifies, where terms like Zionist or globalist become normalized as epithets, like, again, I think Jews have an antenna. We kind of hear it at a higher frequency. We know what that means, and we know where it goes so i'll share a last story this is a couple of months ago it was in december and i was talking to the editor of a major jewish media outlet and the person said to me oh i'm calling you it was after kanye and Kyrie and Chappelle and fuentes this person called me and said i'm thinking about writing anti-semitism this week but i just wrote about it is there really anything new to say and i responded and replied yeah you know it reminds me just before you called me i got a call from this frog who said yeah the water's a little warmer today but it's not that bad. Yeah, it was a little warmer yesterday, but I think I can live with it and so on. So I think we need to recognize that the threats may look different and they may have a different kind of velocity. But ultimately, all of this imperils the liberal project as we know it, and I think could literally affect the Jews. And last thing I'll just say, in a world in which people bash Israel and then bash in the heads of Jews wearing kippot or orthodox Jews, and say, oh, I, I, they were just Zionists. Like, why are we surprised then a year later? And by the way, politicians say crazy things about Israel. A year later, people say crazy things about China. And then people bash Asian American people in the head and say, well, yeah, China's China's the China virus. Like, I think this tendency of politicians and other people to, again, demonize the other and to try to frame it in some political context. I get why that may seem OK theoretically, but in the world where I live, where the ADL is to protect Jewish people of the minorities, I see where it ends up, and I know how it affects and, again, imperils our community.
2: So um, help us think through the sort of standard question of what is legitimate criticism of the state of Israel? What is legitimate criticism of a political project of Zionism? And when that oversteps the mark, when it becomes an excuse for anti-Semitism or when criticism of the state of Israel bleeds into anybody who's visibly Jewish on campus, who's religious on campus, is made out to be the enemy or is attacked physically. You know, in the example you gave on China, something in me reacted against that a little bit because I certainly think that there's been terrible attacks on Asian Americans in this country, often not necessarily from white people. So I think it also shows the complicated Interethnic ethnic parties that Jews also face, where it's not always white supremacists who attack Jews in Brooklyn and so on. But at the same time, I want to say, well, but many good reasons to criticize the Chinese government and doing that in a robust way is certainly something we should be able to do. Now, I know you're talking about sort of Trump and China virus and so on, which clearly were very irresponsible ways of talking. But for people who worry that it's hard to walk that line, how are you able, if that's your conviction, To criticize, for example, Israeli government in a robust way, or even Zionism as a political ideology in a robust way, without it bleeding into anti-Semitism, without it bleeding into adverse forms of prejudice that should be unacceptable.
1: Well, look, I mean, I think my patriotism compels me to criticize policy of American government where I think we get it wrong. It just does. That doesn't mean I would suggest that America should go away, that though the country was founded you know in large part on the displacement some would say the genocide of indigenous people and the economy was built on the backs of enslaved africans and still today kind of substrata of certain classes of people continue to make this economy work the reality is is that i don't think that makes america illegitimate and i'm not committed to destroying it but i will robustly speak up and push back on policies participate openly using the tools at my disposal to call out unjust policies and to push for equal and fair treatment to all. And as a Zionist, which to my mind is the right of Jewish people, political Zionism, political Zionism. I mean, Zionism isn't new, right? It's thousands of years old. The idea that Jews should return to their homeland. If you've ever done a Passover Seder or some of the things, like you're a Zionist if you think next year in Jerusalem. But political Zionism is the idea that uh, the Jews have the right to self-determination in their ancestral homeland. That's it. My Zionism compels me to criticize the Israeli government when I think it gets it wrong, whether it's its treatment of the Palestinians or Arab Israelis or how they're thinking about judicial reform. And I can choose to do that with the instruments at my disposal, but my Zionism compels me to criticize Israel to, so that, that it can be better. But it becomes something else other than standard criticism, impassioned criticism, when my focus is because of its flaws, the entire project should disappear. And we should push for its dissolution and i don't believe that jews have that very basic right to self-determination that it would afford to for example palestinians living in their ancestral home or any other people in their ancestral home so if you don't believe in nationalism i mean look it's okay not to believe in nationalism and you could have a college seminar yasha on you know 19th century theories of nationalism and debate about a bunch of these things but in the world we live in today where i think it would seem as if based on things like i don't know un resolutions or any other number of number metrics israel receives a degree of attention and condemnation far disproportionate to any other country and when you hold it to double standards when you delegitimize its very existence when you demonize and dehumanize its citizens that to me is what i would describe as not just a strong political position that's a different kind of animus that looks and feels a lot like the historic anti-Semitism that's trailed Jews throughout time. So
2: let me try and demarcate this line. So I think it's obviously true that there is a disproportionate amount of focus and energy and condemnation of the state of Israel, despite its many flaws and failings. I mean, when you look at you know, years in which there's, you know, zero, one or two UN resolutions about North Korea, about Xinjiang, about violent uh, crackdowns on protests in Iran and other places. And there's, you know, a hundred resolutions condemning Israel, you know, whatever you think about the injustice in Israel, that clearly is utterly disproportionate and absurd. And I think it does very convincingly show that there is a different kind of animus that is rooted in antisemitism. I think that's true. But conceptually, I think what's often said is, and I believe in this right of the state of Israel to exist, to make that clear, but it's often said that if you doubt the right of the state of Israel to exist, then you're going beyond legitimate criticism of a government into a realm that does become anti-Semitic. And perhaps it's an academic question, right? Perhaps in practice, people who deny the right of the state of Israel to exist nearly always are anti-Semitic in that kind of way. But you could imagine somebody thinking, look, you know, there's a very complicated set of historical circumstances when Israel was founded. And there was obviously a very legitimate need for Jews to be safe somewhere in the world. But there were also, you know, Palestinians living on that land. And, uh, you know, from the beginning, it shouldn't have been a Jewish state. It should have been a multi-religious state or a multinational state or whatever. And in that sense, I obviously believe in the right of people who are currently in Israel to continue living there as they have for at least 50 years and so on, 60 years and so on. But... You know, I think that in that sense, the founding of the state was illegitimate because rather than having India and Pakistan, we should have had one greater India that has the different uh, communities together in a similar way. You know, we shouldn't have had the Jewish state as well. From the beginning, we should have managed to make it work as a multi-ethnic, multi-religious state, and and that's you know, I hope one day that's what it's going to be. That feels like it is kind of denying the right of the state. That doesn't seem necessarily anti-Semitic.
1: Look, I think it is fair to say that Arab Israelis, non-Jews, if you will, living in Israel for 75 years, I mean, they certainly have been able to succeed and have been able to excel in ways in that liberal democracy, participate in the political process, run as elected officials, succeed in business, serve in the armed forces, participate in the arts and culture and commerce, government ranks in ways that are quite different than the way Jews have been able to participate in any other country in the region. So let's acknowledge that. I mean, it wasn't like there weren't Jews in Lebanon or Egypt, still today in Iran, still today in Turkey, still today in other countries in the region, and they don't have the same opportunities. So first and foremost, I think in the confines of the Jewish state of Israel, minorities, Christian, Muslim, or Druze, or ethnic minorities, again, it is far from perfect And my own Sephardi relatives will tell you they didn't feel like they were treated equally and fairly by the Ashkenazi majority in the years after the state was founded. I mean, it's far from perfect. And yet it has been a more liberal, inclusive project than any of the other countries in the region. That's number one. And number two, when you're talking about the Palestinians and we go back to the founding of the state 75 years when the UN demarcated this land for the Jews and this land for the Arabs, as they said it. Like, I don't think you can blame the Jews who said, okay, we'll take this for the fact that the Arabs said, well, we won't. One can, I suppose, in theory, but in practice, had things gone differently back then, it may have been a very different outcome. It wasn't. If things had gone very differently after 1967, with these was, okay, well you know, the famous uh, cartoon, the three no's, right? This is we will give up the Sinai, we'll give it the Golan, they're gonna give up more. But the Arab League said the th- famous three no's. It could have been different in 2000, it could have been different in 2008, it could have been different with the Kerry plan, even the Trump plan. So it is certainly true that there's a protracted conflict between two parties that has never been resolved. But for people that were subjugated and persecuted for thousands of years in diaspora, the country that those early you know Israelis created has been more pluralistic and more tolerant than any of the cohort in terms of the neighborhood where they're situated.
2: There's another point on which I would love for you to help me think through something, and that's the concept of structural racism as it relates to Jews in particular. It seems to me that there is a usefulness to that concept that we should take seriously, that there's individual prejudice and there's are sort of thinking, well, people of this group are terrible, they're inferior, and so on. That's a very powerful human motivator that we need to continue to address, but doesn't express everything, right? In some situations, it may be that there's a structural obstacles to people succeeding, structural ways in which we're discriminated against, even for nobody necessarily has ill-intent towards them, even for nobody necessarily says people in that group are somehow bad. And, and that makes the concept of structural racism legitimate in my mind. At the same time, People now sometimes seem to think of structural racism in such exclusive terms. They say, well, racism has nothing to do with individual intent. It's just to do with how much power you have and how the society serves you. And since Jews are supposedly white and since Jews are supposedly powerful, that means it's impossible to be racist towards them. And I've seen in press coverage, for example, of the shootings in Jersey City and other instances when Jews have been targeted, a real reluctance to talk about the prejudice against them in clear ways, in part, I think, because that idea of structural racism is now seeped deeply into newsrooms. So how do we think about structural racism in a productive way? And how much of a problem is it for Jews that parts of the mainstream, at least, are increasingly unwilling to call bigoted attitudes towards them, even in violent contexts, even in murderous contexts, you know, a form of racial hatred and bigotry?
1: Yeah, I mean... As a community, we don't necessarily lend ourselves to the pat kind of boxes in which races are categorized today. Are you black? Are you white? Are you a person of color? Like, I'll never be white enough for the far right, and I'll always be too white for the far left. Like, the Jews just don't fit neatly. Again, like my spouse, she definitely doesn't present as white, but she has a hard time saying she's truly a person of color. So where does she fit? It's complicated, but I think what is particularly pernicious is this unwillingness to recognize that just because some Jews may quote unquote present as white, and again, even race itself, Yasha, it's like this kind of socio-cultural construct that changes over time, right? I mean, Jews were certainly a race to Adolf Hitler, just not a human one. He thought they were the master race. Today, we're not seen as a race in the rubric of a 1619 world if you will and yet our differences are profound and as you pointed out or was implicit in your question we're targeted and for violence on a regular basis that somehow is denied or dismissed i've heard the stories from colleagues in newsrooms who say we can't cover anti-semitism i've heard it from people at companies who say if we call out anti-semitism we also have to mention the same press release anti-islamophobia and anti-arab racism so it's not that those two issues aren't problems but this notion that you can only talk about you have to bring these together like a blt sandwich or something is crazy and it seems deeply anti-intellectual and it seems very contrived so it's hard structural racism is a real deal problem i think i think there are biases whether by intentional design right with intention or by accident have been built into systems around us that we might not even realize that do need to be kind of unwound. I think that's true. And if you look at the data on everything from like, you know, sentencing guidelines to third grade literacy to pregnancy rates to employment opportunities and so on and so forth, something is definitely happening there to certain parts of our society that is different than for those of us who quote unquote present as white. But we still need to have the capacity to realize that two things can be true at the same time. Like, the structural racism can be real, and yet that shouldn't deny our ability to comprehend the very real threats facing Jewish people. So I think, Yasha, the ways that this can be addressed is by rethinking things like anti-bias education or DEI. Like, the fact that most DEI training doesn't include anti-Semitism is crazy. And whether that's a a sin of commission or omission, it needs to be addressed. And the idea that, again, we have to equate all forms of hate as the same is crazy. We need to call it hate when it happens. And it's not that it's all sui generis, but we need to give all of it its due and understand where it comes from so that we can more effectively address it. And so it requires, I think, a degree of reimagining some systems. It requires a degree of just like, again, intellectual integrity to see things as they are, to call them out as they are and not to be trapped in the conventions of some, I don't know, like some like political faddishness. You know, that's how kind of I would see it
2: from Greenblatt, thank you so much for coming on the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm a huge fan of Persuasion and it's really been a, a privilege to spend some time with
2: you. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about this show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be liked, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally...